Well, we have technically taken two weeks off from the book of Galatians. Uh, last week, we took a break from our Galatians sermon series uh, in order to talk about the resurrection uh, for Resurrection Sunday. And the week before that, we stayed in the book of Galatians. But if you remember, um, we preached the same text back to back, and we kind of did more of a topical thing with that text and talked about some of the the little theological nuggets in that text, which uh, had some applications for us as a church and uh, as a larger Christian ministry. And so even though we were still in Galatians, we were taking a break from Paul's overall train of thought. And so uh, that's why I do feel like we've kind of been out of the sermon series for two weeks to some degree. And so we are going to jump back into Paul's train of thought here. If you remember, Paul is spending a considerable amount of time in the book of Galatians dealing with these false teachers, specifically in relation to his own authority, to his own past, to his own testimony. Half of chapter 1 is dedicated to defending his ministry and defending his own authority. And that's what we saw a few weeks ago. As we finish chapter 1, we saw Paul defending himself, and what I mean by that is Paul specifically was proving that he was not a disciple of the apostles, he was not a student of the apostles, he was not under the apostles. That was sort of his, his overall aim. But Paul is going to continue this, what I call an autobiographical defense. Paul is defending himself by telling his story, and he's going to continue to defend himself through uh, chapter 2, 1 through 10, which will be our sermon series, and he really will go through into 14, so we won't even finish his autobiographical defense until next week. But today we will really get to the end of that, but Paul is sort of shifting now his approach. So he was originally uh, defending his, his, his own credentials in terms of not being under the apostles, not being their, their, their pupil, so to speak. But we are going to, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, uh, see how he sort of shifts his approach now, and he kind of goes to prove something slightly different. In Galatians chapter 2, he is going to address his second trip to Jerusalem. So if you recall uh, from a few weeks ago in Galatians chapter 1, he mentioned how he, um, after a short period of time, after his conversion and doing, doing some ministry work, he went to Jerusalem and he met with the apostles. And then he went back and did a long period of ministry work. And then he went back to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles again. And that is the encounter that he is going to tell us the details about, which as a brief side note, um, we we won't look at this text today, but I believe there's some scholarly debate as to whether this truly fits or not. But I believe that the, the second trip to Jerusalem that Paul is addressing in chapter 2 um, is the beginning of that is documented in Acts chapter 11. Uh, so maybe later on today you can spend some time reading through Acts chapter 11 and I think that will complete the picture a little bit more for you. So let's look at Paul's defense of himself in Galatians chapter 2 and then we will discuss Discuss his argument further. If you will begin with me at the beginning of the chapter and read through verse 10 with me, for these are the very words of God. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. 
though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our, our freedom in Christ that we have in Christ Jesus, so that, we might, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the, gra- forgive me, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Well, as I said, we are really narrowing in on the end of Paul's autobiographical defense of himself. And here's what we're going to look at this week. So, as I've said multiple times at this point, Paul originally proved that he was not under the, the other apostles. He was not a student of the other apostles. He did not look up to them in that kind of a way. But now what he wants to prove is he is also not at odds with them. So he proved last week that he's equal with them, that he's not under them, but now he wants us to see that he's not at odds with them. In other words, the main idea of of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, kind of the, the, the thesis of this sermon, the main concept that Paul wants us to get across is this, that Paul's gospel is the same as the apostles. That's his main idea, that the gospel that he's been preaching to the Gentiles for these last 14 years, he's been off on his own with some of his own ministry companions preaching to the Gentiles, that gospel that he's preaching is the same one that the apostles are preaching to the Jews. He wants us to see that the message he preaches is not at odds with the rest of the apostles. So even though he is not underneath them, he is also not opposed to them. He is also not above them, but they are equals preaching the same message. Paul wants us to see that his gospel is the same as the apostles. They are all preaching the same gospel. And Paul proves this thesis in two primary ways through his autobiographical defense. There are two things that Paul emphasizes in his story so that we will see and be convinced that he is on the same page with the other apostles. Because it's, it's the false teachers in Galatia who are trying to convince the Galatians that Paul is at odds with them. That, that, that Paul, that the apostles are saying this, and this rogue, renegade Paul is saying that. And so Paul wants us to see, no, 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 me and the apostles are on the same page. It's actually you guys who are different. And he does that in two ways. And the first way is he shows us that the apostles affirmed his message. The first point is that the apostles affirmed Paul's gospel. They affirmed it. They affirmed the message that Paul has been preaching to the Gentiles. The apostles affirmed Paul's gospel. Now, where do we see this? Well, let's go back to the beginning of our text. He begins by setting up his next uh, trip to to Jerusalem. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And then he he says, taking Titus along with me. There's something interesting that he mentioned that he's taking Titus along with him because... Uh, In the book of Acts, it doesn't mention Titus at all. 
As a matter of fact, later on, as he talks about going uh, to, to go back to his ministry, he includes Barnabas, but he doesn't include Titus there. So, so store that away. That's going to become very important in just a moment. But he mentions how he, he, him and Barnabas and Titus, they went up again to Jerusalem. And in number two, verse 2, why did he go up? I went up because of a revelation. So why is that important? Well, if, if you read through Acts chapter 11, there was a prophet named Agrippa who, who, was, who prophesied there was going to be a great famine. So most likely the reason Paul went to Jerusalem is because they, were, they had a prophetic word from God that there was going to be a famine. And so Paul went up for famine relief efforts. He went up to help the brothers and sisters, knowing that they would need help. And the reason Paul mentions this is because Paul wants us to see the only reason he went up to Jerusalem was because God called them there to help people. He did not go up because the apostles summoned him. He did not go up because the apostles commanded he show up so that they can have this encounter. He went on his own accord by revelation from God. So again, Paul is establishing his independence. He wants to make that very clear. He is not a slave to the other apostles. He does his own thing according to the will of God. He went up because God called him there. Nobody else. So Paul, because of this revelation, goes to Jerusalem for famine relief, and he brings ministry partners with him. And, and Paul says, well, while I'm here, let's clear something up. Since I'm up here for a, a different reason, let's clear something up. Let's, you know, kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. And so he says again in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, meaning all the brothers, primarily the apostles, though privately before those who seemed influential. Now, we're going to define who that group is later on. But So here's what Paul's saying. So we went up to Jerusalem by revelation of God. And while I was there, I met with first privately with some of the really important apostles. There's kind of this, this group of, of super apostles, if you will. And he met privately with these other apostles. And then after that, he met with all the apostles and likely all, many brothers and sisters. And he set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. And why did he do this? So Paul goes up and he says, okay, so for the last 14 years, here's what I've been preaching. Here's the gospel that Christ gave me. He sets it before them. And why did he do that? He says, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. What does that mean? You know, Paul uses this analogy elsewhere in his letters, this idea of running the race not running in vain. What Paul was not doing is Paul was not asking the apostles to, uh, to uh, validate his gospel, to check it. To, he, no, no, no. All he was simply saying is this, is he knows that for the last 14 years, all of his ministry work, none of that will be effectual if he knows he's at odds with the leaders of the Christian church in Jerusalem. He knows that if, if I go to the Gentile world and I preach gospel A, and I preach gospel A to them all the time. And then it turns out that the apostles have been preaching gospel B. And all of the Jewish Christians believe gospel B. And now the entire Christian church is divided. He knows we're not going to get anywhere. My, my, my efforts have all gone in vain. Paul knows how crucial it is that all of the apostles, all of the Christian leaders be on the same page as it relates to the gospel. 
So he goes up to Jerusalem to lay before his gospel, to lay before them his gospel, and to make sure, are we on the same page? Are we preaching the same message to the Gentiles that we're preaching to the Jews? Are we in accord with each other right now? So that's what he's doing while he's in Jerusalem for famine relief. And here's how we now finally circle back to our point. And this is where Titus comes back in. So what happens when Paul goes to present his gospel to the apostles? Do they agree with him? Do they reject it? Do they say, yeah, that's kind of it, but it's incomplete. Let me add to it. How did the apostles respond to Paul's gospel? Well, he tells us beginning in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So that's Paul's answer. Now, you might be asking yourself, how is that an answer? What does that have to do with anything? Paul goes up to Jerusalem and says, here's my gospel. Do you guys agree? And they say, Titus doesn't need to be circumcised. Like, that that doesn't make any sense, right? Well, it does. And here's why. One thing that I found really funny as we've been preaching through the book of Galatians, and I'm not sure if you all have found this as funny as I have, But we've been talking so much about the gospel, and we've been talking so much about these false teachers who snuck in and are perverting the Christian faith. So the whole book so far has been about how Paul has his gospel and the false teachers have a perverted gospel. But guess what we, we have never heard up to this point? What was the gospel they were trying to preach? From Galatians chapter 1 all the way up to Galatians chapter 2 verse 2, we have no idea what the false teachers in Galatia were saying. Paul hasn't even really elaborated on his gospel. So it's so funny, we're talking about this false gospel, but we don't know what it is. What is it that the false teachers in Galatia were saying? What is it that Paul's responding to? Well, verse 3 is where we are finally beginning, and we will flesh this out. Well, Paul will flesh this out through the rest of the book. But here's where we finally see what their false gospel was, because here's what's important to remember. When Paul wrote the book of Galatians, the controversy was in the air, so to speak. Meaning, um, Paul did not write this necessarily thinking about Christians 2,000 years from now reading through it. Paul wrote it with the Galatians in mind, and he wrote it directly to the Galatians, and everybody knew what the controversy was. So Paul is writing, assuming his audience knows the controversy. We, we might, might not know it, but his original audience did. And so that's why he doesn't, you know, he doesn't begin chapter 1 saying, now for those of you unaware with what's going on, let me tell you about the false teachers, and let me tell you what they're teaching, and that's what I'm responding. No, everybody already knows it. It's, it's the controversy of the day. And so it's assumed in the letter rather than really fleshed out, although he will flesh it out. But we can begin to see exactly what he's going to make very clear later on in the letter was the error of the false teachers. And so let me take a moment in verses 3 through 5 before we come back to our sermon point to introduce you to a group of people known as the Judaizers. The false teachers in Galatia have been uh, called by the church historic. We have named this group the Judaizers. Uh, We get that from one of the words uh, found in verse 14, and we'll talk more about that next week. But essentially, a Judaizer is someone who's forcing Christians to live like Jews. That's why they call him a Judaizer. So a Judaizer is not a full-fledged religious Jew. Otherwise, we would just call them Jewish. 
A Judaizer is someone who would maintain Christian truths and they would call themselves a Christian. They would say, yes, we believe in Jesus. We believe he died. We believe he rose again. They, they, they call themselves Christians and they go to Christian church and they listen to the apostles. But the reason they are not Christians but Judaizers is because they believe that part of Christianity, you have to include the Mosaic law still. In other words, the Judaizers believed that if you want to be saved, you have to become Jewish. So you need to obey Moses' law, and most importantly, the men need to be circumcised because God said in the Old Testament that circumcision was eternal. And all throughout the Old Testament, how were the people of God established based on their circumcision? That's why the Jews would call themselves the circumcised, and they would refer to the rest of the world as the uncircumcised. Circumcision was how they identified themselves as the people of God. So the, question, so the Judaizers were saying this, now that the gospel's gone to the end of the world, we have all of these uncircumcised people who want to be part of the people of God now, and that's good. We want them to be part of the people of God, but how do you become part of the people of God? Yes, you need to believe in Christ, of course, but you need to be circumcised. In other words, the Judaizers were teaching that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Circumcision, in their mind, was not done away with, and Gentile Christians must be circumcised if they want to be saved. So that is the false gospel Paul is dealing with. Are works of Moses' law necessary for salvation? That's the gospel Paul is refuting. Paul's answer is emphatically no. The Gentiles do not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. That was Paul's gospel. And the Judaizers were claiming that Paul was at odds with the rest of the Christian community. The Judaizers were claiming the, the other apostles, they think circumcision is still necessary. And they think circumcision still requires you to be saved. And Paul is rogue and Paul has gone off and Paul has said, you don't need to be circumcised anymore. He's overthrown Moses. He's disgraced God's holy law. And he's at odds with the rest of the apostles. So that was the false gospel in Galatia. And so here's how Paul begins to refute this notion that the apostles disagree with him about circumcision. Remember what we talked about back in verse 1. Who else? He brought Barnabas, a Jew, up to Jerusalem. But guess who else he brought to Jerusalem? Titus. Why is this important? For two reasons. Number one, Titus was a Christian man. He was a co-laborer in the gospel of Christ. Our church, we just got done preaching through the pastoral epistles. We know that Titus was a pastor and that Paul trusted him enough to send him to different regions to pastor different churches. Titus was a good, godly Christian man. But there's something else important about Titus. He's fully Greek. He's not Jewish at all. You see, Timothy was half. Timothy was one of other Paul's companions. Timothy was both half Greek and half Jewish. And so Paul made Timothy get circumcised before they started their journey because he knew that the Jews were not going to listen to him. They weren't going to take him seriously if he wasn't. So Timothy, for the sake of his ministry, was willing to be circumcised in order to do ministry work with Paul. And so that's what the Judaizers are clinging to. They're saying, listen, this guy Paul, he just says what people want to hear. When he's with the Jews, yeah, make Timothy get circumcised. But when he's not with the Jews, no, you don't need to be circumcised. That's the inconsistency they think they've seen in Paul. So here's what Paul does. And this is why I think this was a calculated move on Paul's end. 
I think this was so brilliant. I think Paul knew the trouble. He knew the controversy in the air, even from afar. So he brought Titus as a taste, as, as a case study, as a test. He brought a, an uncircumcised Christian Gentile pastor to Jerusalem. And he said, let's see what the apostles do with Titus. Do you think the apostles are going to force him to get circumcised if he wants to be saved? Are they going to force him to get circumcised if he wants to be a Christian leader? So Titus goes to Jerusalem, and then now we circle back to our Paul and the apostles on the same page. What happens when Paul presents Titus to the apostles in Jerusalem? Verse 3, but even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So what does that tell you about the apostles' view of circumcision? Do they find it necessary for salvation? Do they find it necessary for Gentiles to become Jews in order to be people of God? Obviously, they don't find it as important as the Judaizers claim they did. Because they told Titus, do whatever you want. We don't care. Be circumcised. Don't be circumcised. We don't care. So you see, Titus is the case study that proves that the apostles are on the same page as Paul. That they do not, in fact, think circumcision is necessary for salvation. Now, this might sound like a trivial matter to us, but it's not. Because look at how Paul describes it in verse 4. What Paul is doing in verse 4 is the Judaizers in Galatia, Paul's saying, this isn't new. I, I encountered this the last time I went to Jerusalem. We've already, he's trying to tell the Galatians, folks, we've already dealt with this. That's what he's trying to tell them. He said, guys, we should be past this. We already dealt with this. The last time I went to Galatia, we dealt with this, and Titus proved our case. And the reason he brought Titus, this is what he said. Verse 4, yet because of false brothers. So again, Paul does not think the Judaizers are saved. They call themselves Christians, but Paul says they're false Christians. These false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in. And how does he describe this concept of having to obey Moses' law in order to be saved? That those who promote such a thing spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So Paul thinks if you make the law necessary for salvation, you have enslaved yourself to the law and you have lost salvific freedom in Christ. Jesus has set you free from the law. You have died to the law. He has released you from the law. The law can no longer be your judge because of Christ. But it's the Judaizers who want to bring you back underneath it. And Paul says because the Judaizers were trying to enslave us back to legalism, me and the rest of the apostles, verse 5, did not yield in submission to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Here's what Paul means by that. I, we, we mentioned Timothy. Here's what could have potentially happened with Titus. The apostles might have said something like this. You know, Titus, circumcision is not necessary for salvation. We don't care whether you're circumcised or not, but here's what we think. We think that since so many of the Christians are Jewish and so many of the people we're trying to reach are Jewish, we think it would be helpful for you to be circumcised. That would help your ministry. They could have said that. That's what they did with Timothy. 
So under different circumstances, they might have asked Titus to get circumcised. Why didn't they? It's because they knew there was these false teachers. If they asked Titus to be circumcised, they would have taken that and they would have run with it. And they would have said, see, the apostles affirm our gospel of circumcision. So under any other circumstance, they might have asked Titus to get circumcised. But because all of the apostles knew there were people who would capitalize on that to prove their point and further establish the truth of the gospel, they said, listen, under, uh, under other circumstances, this might be helpful, but these false teachers will run with that. So just to prove them wrong, don't do it. That is why these men, who, did, who they were not anti-circumcision. They didn't think it was sinful or wrong. But they did not compel Titus to do that so that the gospel would be made crystal clear. The apostles wanted to send the message, circumcision is not part of the gospel. And they made that crystal clear. And Paul writes to Galatia saying, guys, we've dealt with this already. The apostles already affirmed my gospel. They already affirmed my gospel. Not the Judaizers. They affirmed my gospel. So we see point number one proved crystal clear that the apostles affirmed Paul's gospel. But he he actually goes on even further. Look at what he says in verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. Let me, let me just take a quick pause for a moment because we, we need to understand this. What is Paul, what is this whole, those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me? Here's what is most likely going on. The Judaizers are not just holding Paul up to the mirror of the apostles. For whatever reason, the Judaizers believe that even among the apostles, there's this group of super influential apostles. They're, they're kind of like the leaders of the leaders, and it's that core group that they think is, is, is far and above everybody else that they are holding Paul accountable to. And so Paul is likely borrowing their language. It's probably the Judaizers who were referring to these as the men of repute, as your translation might say, or uh, the men of great influence. Now, we do know historically there were apostles, and, and we're going to name them in a minute, that were elevated to a higher status than the others. So they probably are reflecting the larger Christian community. So why does Paul use this language, those who seemed influential, but what they were makes no difference to me? He's not trying to insult the apostles. He's not trying to diminish their God-given authority. But remember what's happening here. Paul is being held up to these men, and he's being portrayed as, as their inferior And so Paul, again, he's trying to establish his independence. He's trying to give the Galatians confidence in his own authority. So that's why he's saying, listen, I went up for famine relief, okay, guys? All those super apostles, the super influential people you keep talking about, it makes no difference to me. I just went up for famine relief, okay? Paul is trying to assure people that he is confident in his own ministry. He is confident in the mission he has been given from God, the gospel he has been given from God, and he asserts that confidence by saying, I'll preach the gospel to anybody. I'll share my gospel with anybody. I I don't care who they are. God wants everyone to be saved. He shows no partiality, so it made no difference to me. You, You see this very, very successful tactic he's utilizing here? But anyway, what's the overall point he's making in verse six? He says that those who seemed influential added nothing to me. 
So when I say that the apostles affirmed Paul's message, I mean that in two different ways. Number one, they acted accordingly to it, right? They didn't require Titus to be circumcised, so they agreed with it. They said it was true. But you know, in life, sometimes something can be true but incomplete, right? Sometimes two statements flatly contradict each other, but sometimes two statements are are in harmony with each other, but one of them is still lacking, right? If someone were to come up and say, Jesus is fully a man, and in order to be fully man, or he had to be fully man in order to save you from your sins, I would say, yeah, that's true. Jesus is fully man, absolutely. Did he, and he had to be 100% human to save us from our sins, absolutely. But if that's all you think about Jesus, you're still wrong. Because even though that's true, we have to also understand that Jesus is fully God. That's not enough. The humanity of Christ is true, but not enough. And so Paul wants us to see that that's not what happened with him. He didn't go up and present, here's my gospel, and the other apostles went, okay, that's true, but it's not enough. That didn't happen. Why? Because what does he say? Not only did they not contradict him, verses 3 through 5, but 6, they added nothing. They didn't say, okay, yeah, Paul, that's true, but also take this, and uh, you missed this. There's also this, and there's this component. No, 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 no. Paul came to them with a true gospel and a complete gospel. Paul showed up to Jerusalem with a true, complete gospel. It's the same one the apostles preached to its fullest degree. They did not contradict his message, and they did not add to his message. And so that is why verses 1 through 6 establish our first point, that the apostles affirmed Paul's gospel. Paul has the same gospel as the apostles. They are on the same page in terms of the gospel. And then verses 7 through 9 establishes our second point. And the second point is that not only did the apostles affirm Paul's gospel, The apostles affirmed Paul's gospel, but we also see, number two, the apostles recognized Paul's authority. They recognized his authority, right? Because, listen, I have the same gospel as the apostles, but that doesn't make me an apostle. Just because you believe the gospel doesn't mean you're an apostle. So, yeah, Paul goes up to Jerusalem and he says, here's my gospel, here's what I've been preaching. And the apostles could have said, yep, that's true, that's good, that's the gospel, but you don't have authority, so sit down. No, not only did they affirm Paul's gospel, but they recognized his authority. They did not give him his authority, they did not ordain him, they did not call him. God did that, but the apostles affirmed it and they embrace Paul. They accept Paul's authority. And here's where we see that in two different ways. Look at verses 7 through 9. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, who is Peter, when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. It's a very long run-on sentence, but we can kind of break it up into uh, important parts. So we finally have gotten to the identity of those who seemed influential. This this unique group of men, and it's found in verse 9, James, Peter, and John. 
These three, and we know this from church history, um, we have um, scant but, but sufficient evidence to see that in church history, James, Peter, and John sort of were elevated as like the leaders of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. All of the apostles were leaders. All of the apostles had authority. But these three men were kind of like the, as, as the text calls them here, the pillars. And we know that Peter was originally kind of the key leader. And then over time, James sort of usurped him as Peter was getting arrested, and then he went out and did ministry work, but James stayed put. So James eventually kind of becomes the keystone pastor of the Jerusalem church. So Paul says that we've got these three apostles, and they're kind of like the ultimate leaders with ultimate authority. And they, what does the text say? In verse 9, those who seem to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles. So not only did the apostles agree with Paul's gospel, they also recognized his authority. They said, yeah, uh, you, God called you to the Gentiles. Yeah, we think that's good. You should keep doing that. They affirmed his authority. These pillars did. These apostles did. And notice what he says earlier in verse 7. Why did they do this? Why did they extend the right hand of fellowship with Paul? Why did they agree with his commission? Well, because verse 7 on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, so they agreed with Paul's gospel, to the circumcised, and then this is key, verse 8, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So, in other words, here's what the apostles saw. What Peter is to the Jews, Paul is to the Gentiles. Paul is the new Peter. Peter emerged very early on. We see this in the Gospels and in the book of Acts as the leader of the Jerusalem church. He was sort of the senior pastor among all the other apostolic pastors, if you will. And, and we see in the New Testament, we see in the Gospels that Peter was called to evangelize the Jewish people, to plant church among the Jews, to reach the Jews for the Gospel. And you see this in the book of Acts. You can read right after Pentecost, Peter breaks out in this glorious sermon, and Peter's sermon to the Jews saves thousands of people. So Peter was called, he was given authority over the Jews, and he had filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was commissioned for the Jews. And what the apostles are realizing is that what happened to Peter happened to Paul, only Paul was for the other half of the world. Just like Peter was called to have authority over the Jews and to preach the gospel to the Jews, Paul likewise, verse 8, he who worked, the Holy Spirit who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me from mine to the Gentiles. The apostles here are saying, if Peter's an apostle, then Paul's an apostle. They have equalized Paul and Peter. They just have a different mission field. But they have the same authority, the same spirit. This is why, just as a brief side note, this is one of many reasons why we reject any kind of what we call Petrine primacy. This belief that Peter was a pope and that Peter was established as the pope and all the other apostles answered to Peter and that whoever sits in the chair of Peter is the pope today. We reject the papacy. There is no pope. It's unbiblical. It's blasphemous. Paul had the same authority as Peter. If Peter was a pope, then so was Paul, because they have the same authority to the different mission field. Paul was not under Peter. He did not answer to Peter. He was not called by Peter. He was not ordained by Peter. No, he saw himself as an absolute equal. And so did the other apostles. 
Paul was the Gentiles Peter. And they recognize that. And that's why, verse 9, they extend the right hand of fellowship to him. They accept him. They embrace him. And by the way, this never changes. And to prove it, keep your marker here and, and, and turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter. Listen what Peter, from his own lips, so to speak, from his own pen, this is what Peter says about Paul. And in 2 Peter, by the way, 2 Peter was written long after the book of Galatians. This comes much longer than Galatians. And look at how Peter talks about Paul. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 15 and 16. These sentences are long, but they will be made relevant in a moment. This is what Peter writes. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter, many years later, is talking about Paul, and he, he says three things about Paul which are just astonishing. First and foremost, in verse 15, how does he address Paul as our beloved brother? Do you think Peter would say that if Paul and him were on different pages about the very gospel of Jesus? No. Peter accepts Paul as a brother, and not just a brother, a beloved brother, a dear brother. Peter and Paul were close, intimate brothers, ministry companions. They loved each other. Our beloved brother Paul, and how does he write according to the wisdom given him? Peter is saying the same wisdom that God gives me that makes you trust my letters is also given to Paul, which makes you trust his. So Peter recognizes Paul as a cherished brother in the Lord. He recognizes Paul as divinely inspired. And to prove that point, how does he describe Paul's letters? Look at the very end of verse 16. They twist Paul's letters as they do the other scriptures. So what does Peter think about Paul's letters? Scripture. Peter thinks Paul's letters are divinely inspired just as much as Moses, just as much as Isaiah, just as much as John, just as much as James, just as much as himself. The apostles recognized Paul is a dear brother in the Lord receiving divine insight and what Paul writes is Scripture. It's your Bible. You better listen. So if you turn back to Galatians, it's made clear. Our two points are firmly established. The apostles affirmed Paul's gospel, and the apostles recognized Paul's authority. They're on the same page. Verse 10, this is the only thing the apostles you could try to claim added to Paul. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor. We see in this, this might be related to the famine, relief, but we see the broader general understanding that from the very early stages, the earliest possible stages of Christianity, the Christian faith has had a huge heart for the poor. It should make us really examine ourselves and ask ourselves, how much is our ministry? How much do we value the poor? But that's a bit of a digression. That's the only thing they quote-unquote added to Paul's messages. Just make sure that you don't neglect the poor. 
And guess what? Paul says they weren't actually adding that because that's something he had already been doing and something he was already wanting to do before they even said it. The very thing he says, I was eager to do. As a matter of fact, it's the reason he went up there in the first place. So did they add this to his message? No. Did they add this to his ministry? No. This wasn't a command. This was a suggestion. And Paul said, I'll gladly take it because I love this and I'm going to keep doing this. So in summary, the apostles added nothing to Paul's message. They did not contradict Paul's message. What does that mean? It means they affirmed his message. The apostles affirmed Paul's gospel. And then the second thing we saw was that they also recognized his authority. They did not give him his authority. They did not endow him or ordain his authority. That was given by Jesus. But the apostles recognized, yeah, that is legit. We're going to listen to Paul. They affirmed his gospel and they recognized his authority. So I want us to conclude with some application. How do we apply this? Well, we apply it similarly that we applied it, uh, our, our message, the last time we were in our sermon series. Last time, we talked about how you should listen to Paul. You should trust Paul's letters. That was the application then. What's our application? How does this affect my daily life today? Well, we're just going to take that one step further. First, we said listen to Paul, but now Paul has established that he is on the same page with the other apostles. So what's the takeaway application for you today? Listen to all the apostles. Listen to the entire apostolic witness. They are all on the same page. They all share the same authority. The Christian faith that you want is the apostles' faith. In other words, I'm asking you this question. By what standard? When you make claims about God, when you make claims about religion, the Judaizers were making one claim, Paul was making another claim. We have all these religious claims out there. What's the standard? How do we test religious claims? How do we know God? The answer biblically is the apostles, i.e. your New Testament, the Bible. This is your ultimate authority. Here are the apostles. They're right here. We need to listen to all of them. We need to take all of our Bible seriously. In other words, think of it in a kind of a linear argument. Obviously, our standard for God and religion is God. If you want to know what's true, you need to ask the question, what does God say about this? That's the truth, God. But that begs the question, well, how do we know what God thinks? How do we know what God says? Well, that was the purpose of Jesus. Jesus came to earth to be the full revelation of God. He came to earth to explain the Father, to show us the Father. Jesus is how we know God. He says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you want to know what God is, who he's like, what he's like, you need Jesus. But there's another problem. That begs the question. Jesus ascended to heaven 2,000 years ago. He's, you don't hear him speak. Jesus is not speaking to you. So how do you know what Jesus says? And that's where the important foundation comes in. Who has the divine authority to speak on behalf of Christ, who is given the divine authority to speak on behalf of God? So who is it that speaks for God? And the biblical answer are the prophets and the apostles. And the way we have them today is Scripture. Turn in your Bibles. We will finish here to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says it obviously better than I can. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. 
Beginning in verse 19, Paul here is describing the church as the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple, which is why we don't have a temple anymore. We don't need a temple anymore because the church is the temple. And he says this in verse 19, speaking of the Gentiles, the uncircumcised now being brought into the people of God, not through circumcision, but through the blood of Christ. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, this metaphoric household of God, the Christian faith, what is it resting on? Was it standing on? Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the Christian church is the new temple and we are adding members and we are growing and maturing. And how does this Christian temple stand? How does the Christian church stand? What's our foundation? What's our authority? Well, he says, first and foremost, it's Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's the most important piece. He's the rock. But there's another level between the church and Jesus. There's another important foundation that has to be laid or else the church crumbles. And what is it? The apostles and the prophets. So what's the application of Galatians chapter 2? It's very simple. Believe your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Take the the apostles and the prophets which have been preserved by God and scripturated and placed into the hands of Christians and churches all over the world. Believe them, study them, know them, obey them. The Christian church was glued to the apostolic witness and we can continue that today by opening up our scriptures and conforming our lives to them.